So I met the yeah. guy that invented Ronald McDonald. No way. So yep. what was wrong with him? Because, you know. Well, he was pretty much a rock tea. star, though, because he invented a quarter pounder and a Big Mac. He, he invented all that. So he, he was Ray Kroc's first marketing guy. And he came to one of my mm. Vistage groups. And he was 90 at the time. Wow. And I said, what are you doing in town? And he said, he said, the chairman of Coca-Cola is going to pay me $100,000 to have lunch with him, and then I'm having dinner tonight with the chairman of Georgia Pacific, and he's paying me $100,000 because they want to pick my brain. <laughs> Must be nice. Must I aspire nice. to that. Well, what I heard about the Big Mac, at least the naming of the Big Mac, now this is from Food That Built America on the History Channel. Mm -hmm. They said they couldn't decide on the name for it. And they were doing it in response to Burger King, the Whopper, right? right. And Ray Kroc's like, I need a signature burger. Why don't, why don't I have a signature burger? What's wrong? You know, Burger King is kicking their ass. So he's like, we got to have a signature burger. So they came up with the Whopper or the Big Mac, but they didn't have a name for it. And so they had like all these different names and none of them worked. And then they were in this big PR marketing meeting and the secretary said, why not Big Mac? And there's actually like a plaque that honors her. It's like Iris Glitch or something. For the Big Mac. But at the like 50th anniversary of the Big Mac or whatever it was, they presented her with like a plaque and her certificate. That's what she got. She didn't get any compensation. Yeah. Yeah, she's not getting $100,000 for lunch with That's the terrible. CEO. She, but she did get mentioned in the History Channel episode. But... Because I Googled her afterwards, and they're like, yeah, they gave her, they gave her like a little scroll thing with a seal on it. Hey, everybody, Steve Beecham here with another episode of Beach Talks, and I've got my friend Stephanie Stuckey. She's agreed to come and spend a little bit of time with us, and we want to explore about the whole history of Stuckey's, and she's taking it over now, and, and where she's going, and maybe some business lessons that we've yeah. learned, and a little bit of her history, and also it's... I'm excited to have her here, and I hope you all enjoy this uh, this podcast. So, Stephanie, tell me basically how your grandfather, right? Yes, my grandfather. So how did he become the pecan, or is it pecan? How do we say it? Okay, so you're starting with a very controversial topic here, right? Oh. <laughs> I know, you're no stranger to controversy. Just dive right in with a tough question. So I get asked that a lot. I will tell you the answer my grandfather Gave. That's the one we want. Yes. He said they are pecans when you pick them, pecans when you sell them. I love it. Because we're from South Georgia, and we say pecans, and I've heard every joke about pecans as something you keep under your bed. to. So we're going to go know. pick the pecans, yes. but we're going to sell these folks some pecans. Yes, because pecan sounds very oh. highfalutin. And, yes. that's, and we want more money for we them. We want more money. So I guess that's the other answer I've heard that I like is it depends on the price. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So how did he get in that business? What was the deal? Did he have pecans or? No. No. It was a bumper crop year. Okay. So pecans, which by the way, our state, Georgia, is the number one state for pecan production and has been since the 1950s. Wow. So this was during the Great Depression and he was looking for work. He was looking for a side hustle. He was farming. He hated to farm. He had to drop out of law school at the University of Georgia because of the Depression, and they couldn't afford to keep him there. So he was farming, and he wanted more income. And there were no jobs, but one thing was plentiful, 
because it was a bumper crop year, pecans. So he went around the countryside buying pecans from local farmers area? all over Which middle Georgia, Dodge County, Georgia, okay. right in the middle of the state. Okay. So he drove around, he bought up pecans, he went to a local shell where he got the pecan shelled, and then he had a little stand on the side of the road. And people would pull over and stop. And one day he had this great idea that if he made candy with the pecans, he could probably get more people to stop. So he ran the mile from the little roadside stand to his home, interrupted my grandmother's bridge game, and said, Ethel, let's make candy, which was a great idea, but one problem, she didn't know how to make candy. So she looked around the bridge club and she said, do, do y'all, do you ladies know how to make candy? And they did, so they all went in the kitchen and they started making pralines, divinity, fudge, and then they came up with the pecan log roll. So they invented it. They place. invented that. In I've heard people say, kid. we've had the pecan log roll forever. I'm like, no, no, that was my grandma and the bridge club ladies. And the cool thing is those bridge club ladies became the candy club. So for the first several years of Stuckey's, they made all the candy for that little roadside Those stand. Ladies. And from that roadside stand off of US-1 in 1935, Eastman, Georgia, Eastman. he grew it into what was the first roadside retail chain. At our peak, we had 368 stores in 40 states. So before there was TA or Love's or Wawa or Bucky's, there was Stuckey's. We predated all of them. The very first store he had was 1937. So we date our oh founding to 1937. So that predates all of those other roadside retail chains. And the first store was where? Eastman, Georgia, and, and East then Kingsland, Georgia. And then we had one in Unadilla. And then World War II hit, he had shut down his stores. And that's when he got into manufacturing because he started making candy for the troops because sugar was rationed, so the only way he could get sugar was to be part of the war effort. Oh, and then he also wanted to support the war effort. But then when the war ended, they all came back, the GIs came back, and went to school on the GI Bill, started raising families, making money. And traveling. And going on vacation. And back then, nobody flew. You went on vacation, you threw the family in the back of the Woody station wagon, and you got in your car, and you thought nothing of driving four days. And so Stuckey's was back in business on the, on the roads. And then in 1956, the interstate came along, so my grandfather had to move his stores off of Route 66 and the Lincoln Highway, the Jefferson Highway, the Dixie Highway, onto the new interstate, which he did. And he grew from there, and then he sold the company in 1964, made a lot of money, and that was good, but then, unfortunately, we had decades of outside corporate owners he crashed the brand. He, he sold it. Not your dad. He sold it. Okay. Yeah. And so he made a lot of money, but the, co the company went downhill under outside ownership. So where does yeah. your dad play into that? Did he have anything to do yes, with Yes, my dad did. He played a cool role. So my father had his own career. He was in Congress for 10 years from Georgia. And then he started Interstate Dairy Queen Corporation. So he had the franchise rights to Dairy Queen stores all over the United States on the interstate highway system. So he took that knowledge that he had from my grandfather and put it into Interstate Dairy Queen stores. And he built that from nothing. Very well 
wealthy, very prosperous business. And in 1985, the company that had owned Stuckey's at that point, there were a couple of owners, they approached my dad because Stuckey's was not doing well. And they said, will you take it off our hands, basically? And my dad really didn't want to take on Stuckey's. It was losing money at that point. But he paired it with his Dairy Queens. Mm. So that's how he kept Stuckey's alive. And you'll still see today there's some Stuckey's next to Dairy Queens. So fast forward some 30 years, he sells his Dairy Queen business to Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. But Warren Buffett didn't want to buy Stuckey's. But he wanted the Dairy Queen. He wanted the Dairy Queen because he owned American Dairy Queen. So it kind of all fit nicely within his portfolio. And Stuckey's was just left. My dad and all his business partners made a lot of money off of that, and they retired because they were, at that point, in their 60s and 70s. And Stuckey's, over the following decade, just started to decline again, just had a couple of people So who had, so your dad bought Stuckey's yes. back, and then he sold the Dairy Queen. Who owned the Stuckey's that were... Still so there. my dad and his former business partners, there okay. were about six owners. And they just kind of let it they kind off because they, they'd already made their money selling the Dairy Queen. And yes, they, they left it on autopilot, basically. They had a couple people managing it. Good people, they're still on staff, but just not a lot of resources, not, not a lot of attention. And at that point, they were all getting, you know, they're in their 70s. They retired. Yeah, they Enjoy were done. life. They were yeah. Done. So that's when... Fast forward 2019, I get a phone call one day. I'm minding my own business as an environmental attorney, and they asked me if I wanted to buy Stuckey's. Who's they? My dad's business partners. His former business partner, one of his former business partners called me and said, do you want to buy Stuckey's? And you said? I, I was totally flattered. I, I just thought, oh my gosh, they, they called now, me. Now why did they pick you? They you have other brothers and sisters right, No, they cousins? didn't. So that was the thing. I was really flattered. I thought, well, they all call me the eco wacko. They think I'm this tree-hugging environmental lawyer who doesn't know anything about business. I was shocked that they called me. Well, it turned out they called all the other grandchildren. There's seven of us. They uh, called okay. the others first. You're so the I last was, one? I was the, I mean, there were even grandchildren younger than me. I, because I called my siblings and my cousins and said, who's in this with me? And they're like, oh, we already passed. So I was, I was not the first choice, but let me tell you, I think it is a superpower to not be the first choice. And because, why? Well, you have a chip on your shoulder. <laughs> it's like, I am going to prove. It's like somebody told you you were ugly, and so yeah, you're going to try to dress like, up as much as you can. Oh, my gum. Maybe I'm the last one picked <laughs> for the team, but I'm going to be the best player. So I, that just emboldened me. I'm like, yeah, heck yeah, I'm going to do this. So, you know, I bought it because it was for sale. And I had the money for it because no bank is going to loan money for a so you company. You had to have your own money. Yeah, it was six figures. They didn't figures. finance it for you. Or it anybody? was six figures in debt. It was six figures in the red when I bought the company. So there aren't investors lining up to give All right, me so money you have, for this. So you have investors, right? I think one of them's your I cousin. I have two business partners. Two, yeah, two one business. of them is a very distant cousin, but we like to say we like cousins, to say cousin. Yeah, we wanted to so how did family. that cousin get involved? Did you call him and mm -hmm. say, hey? We had, we had mutual friends and business associates, and his family had managed my family's pecan orchard for a decade. He's in the pecan business. And I was looking to get more into pecan manufacturing. 
because when I bought so the he company, had knowledge. yeah, we didn't own any of the stores. There's only 13 original stores left. They're all licensed. We don't make a lot of money off of them. Clearly, we were six figures in the red. That business model was not working. So I had to figure out another business model. And I thought, well, we've been selling pecan log rolls since the 1930s. Let's quit outsourcing and paying other people to make this for us. Let's make it ourselves, improve the quality, improve our margins. And this is our, our past and our butter. future. But also, we are now making healthy snacks. So we do pecan snacks. We do some. Now, did we, you buy this company? So or was we this bought. There? Yeah, we bought an existing manufacturing facility that was for sale. That's the one in Renz. In Renz, Georgia, and my so the man who is now my one of my two business partners, R.G. Lamar. He was in the process of working on buying that plant already and he said I, I could use a partner and so we initially okay. it was just okay let's pull our money but then we thought well if we're putting our money together and we're buying this together why aren't we joining our companies because he had a he had a snack nut company too so we merged our two companies and then we bought this other company so there were there were a couple of mergers there and it was exciting. And then we got, a year later, we got another business partner who's a marketing guy. Ted. Who, Ted Wright, who's written a book called Fizz Marketing. And I was a big fangirl of his book. He's and brilliant, I called by the him. way. If you haven't gotten this book, Word of mouth get... marketing. Yep. And so I just called him and said, I, I love what you do. Can I have lunch with you? And that lunch turned into me asking him to be on the board, which turned into us asking if he wanted to buy in. And so he is now an equity investor. So it's the three musketeers. All right. Yeah, so there's three of us. So let's go yeah. back to the um, merging of companies. What's the business lesson from that? What did anything on that? Because people yeah. talk about merging companies. So what did you learn? I mean, is there anything you learned about that? I think the biggest lesson, well, first of all, there's a lot that you can learn just like the logistics about valuation and how you put together an agreement to, you know, operate the company. So all of that you can learn pretty easily. I, the best book, I, I read the Harvard Business Review book on mergers and acquisitions like three times and really? highlighted it. So there's a lot of resources out there on the nuts and bolts. Okay. But what I, I would add that is not in that book and they don't talk about as much is the merger of the cultures. So that's something I would do differently. I think my business partner and I, we aligned pretty easily because both of those two companies were pretty small. Mm -hmm. So it was easy for us to just have a bunch of conversations one-on-one -on -one and know that we were aligned with where we wanted to take the company. But the manufacturing facility had almost 100 employees. So that is a different scenario. And they were in two separate locations and you brought them yes, together? Yes, we we're still merging them. Okay. So it's the culture piece, under, making sure that the company you're merging into, you understand what their history is. They've been around since 1935. We've been around since 1937. So sharing those histories and making sure that they know what your brand stands for, you know what their brand stands for. So there's a lot of listening and conversations that have to happen about that that I would do differently and how, probably how start would, sooner. But how would you do that if you've got these 
employees at these different places. I mean, do you call a meeting and yeah. get them all together? Yeah. So, we hey, started two of us are getting married and y'all are the children and come along with the party? Or? We've started having more hands-on meetings. We've done team building things, everything from everyone gets a Stuckey's t-shirt and a hoodie to we've been hosting meals and parties so we can just get to know one another. One thing I like to do is work a shift. So I'll get on the candy line and actually get, right get, my, get my hair net on, get my gloves. That's awesome. And actually make product. So all of that was really interesting and, and it's a process. It does not happen overnight. The other thing, which I didn't think about, was operating systems accounting systems, are you accrual, are you cash basis? What accounting software do you use? What's your ERP? That's all All that. of that has taken two what years. What ERP? So, I don't, don't ask me what that acronym stands <laughs> for, but I know it's when that. you merge all the software of your companies, like oh. the operating software. And so, we have migrated everything to Microsoft Business. And so we, we spent a lot of time researching what should be our integrated software program for our accounting. All of that, just how you book things, yeah. right? Like, it's taken two years. How you, you integrate, how you integrate the financials in a way that makes sense. Because different people book different items in different categories. How do you depreciate equipment? How, you know. All of that. All right. So this company now. That's, that's been like. <laughs> I just thought, all right, we're one we're big going. happy company. Let's go. It's like, oh, no. It's taking all right, a so while. So how the company today as it exists, the plant is where and how many employees are there? It's in Wrench, Georgia, and we have a little over 100 employees. So everybody's on the same roof now, so to speak? They will be in a month. We're moving our warehouse, so that's taking so you, longer. So you and I talked before, and you were trying to figure out what you were going to do to grow, yeah. and has that happened? Do you know yes. what you're doing? We are expanding our facility in Renz. So Renz is going to stay the home of the... That's going to stay. I do see in our future a second manufacturing facility or a separate distribution center as we grow, probably in the Midwest, that would enable us to get to the, to get the out there quicker. West Coast. Yes. Do they know pecans out west? I mean, people are familiar with it? Well, pecans, pecans are grown <laughs> as far west as New Mexico. I didn't know that. Yeah, Arizona, New Mexico grow pecans. New Mexico is a huge state for pecans, as is West Texas. Oklahoma grows wow. pecans. Yeah, so uh, it's, so a, it's a nut that, you know, and more and more people, especially in the west, in California, they're adopting nut-based diets. So it's a great product. So are pecans good for you? They're the healthiest nut. The healthiest nut. They really are. And we have a lot of catching up to do because if you go on the snack aisle, what do you see? You see almonds. Almonds. You see cashews. cashews. Peanuts, which isn't even a nut. It's a legume. So we don't need peanuts. Well, but we're from Georgia, so we like peanuts. Well, that's right? true. We like our peanut farmers. I, that's true. we got to support our... Our fellow um, agribusiness <laughs> from Georgia entrepreneur. So yes, I like I like peanuts, but just saying it's a legume. You see pistachio, right? Yeah. But you you will be hard pressed to find a bag of pecans. 
they're usually fighting for space in a mixed nut bag. Right. Yeah. So the reason for that is that most of these other nuts have very organized co-ops. So like uh -huh. Blue Diamond and Emerald, those are food co-ops. So all those farmers are concentrated in one area. They're in California. Okay. And they're all in these co-ops, so they work together. They're very and we organized. Don't have that? No, com farmers are in 20 states. They're fiercely independent. They're scrappy. They're fighting with the shellers. There's just been decades of them not being really unified. But lately, they've gotten unified. They've gotten a federal marketing order. So all these other nuts have federal marketing orders. And so, what does that mean? so many products that we enjoy uh -huh. have a federal marketing order. So that means that you agree as an industry to impose a fee per ton of your product. And that goes to the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, and they take that money and they use it for research to show that your product is healthy. They use it for marketing to help sell your product. So like so, the orange guys and the grapefruit guys and the banana guy, well maybe not bananas, but Yeah, because the they're not guys. grown here. I'll, I'll give you a great example, Got Milk. Yeah. That's a USDA marketing funded campaign. Because they've all gotten together. Got milk. Yeah. Pork, the other Pork. white meat, that's a USDA funded program. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the pecan growers have just been a little slow and getting to the <laughs> Are you working USDA on that? Oh, are you trying My to business get... partner is. That's why I have a business partner who is a pecan farmer. He is on the Georgia board for the Pecan Commission. So he's in with all these folks, and they're making progress. We now have our federal marketing order. We've now got a marketing campaign going. We're getting research done. That takes a minute. But we're, we're starting to roll out, and I think America is starting to discover the pecan is not just for pie. It doesn't just belong on the produce aisle. It belongs on the snack aisle, and I think it belongs on the wine aisle because it tastes oh. really good with wine. It well, pairs well with we wine. we eating some with our right? wine? So, what, which one would we pair I with like our wine? I like the maple, personally. How is that with bourbon? I've got my bourbon. I think it'd know. be good with bourbon. That's why I, I picked it. <laughs> so this is how we make it. We I'm not going to give all of our process away because we have a proprietary process that makes our nuts taste better. It really seals in the flavor and the crunch. But we um, roast these, and then, that's good, and then we toss them in maple syrup. These things are huge. Yeah. These oh are all Georgia-grown pecans. Oh, my God. All right, so this These are called desirables. Desirable. Isn't that a great name for the pecan variety? It's called a desirable. A desirable. Mm -hmm. All right, does Stuckey's own their own pecan orchard? We do not. We purchase from other Even farmers. Even though your partner, I thought maybe when y'all yes. got together that you got his business. I didn't buy his pecan grove. Okay. We, we merged our snack nut businesses. Does his pecans end up in the Stuckey's yes. mix? All of them. Yeah. He sells to us, and then Ooh, we have, made. my family has a pecan orchard, but it's not owned by the company. Okay. And so those and pecans go. So there are some pecans. You may be eating a pecan. So we can say came, a Stuckey owns mm -hmm. some pecans. So some of the nuts that go in our candies and our snacks are from the Stuckey pecan orchard. Okay. But it is not 
like this vast orchard. It's a hundred acres. It's small. That's small. That's small. Yeah. Okay. Mm. It's really good. It crunches. So real quick, if we're gonna do, if you and I wanted to start a pecan orchard, how long does it take to get a tree that's producing pecans? That's the problem. It's very capital intensive. It's five to seven years. Oh man. Mm hmm. So that's why. That's kind of like bourbon and wine. You got to let it sit for a while. The cool thing is this type of industry that has a long ramp up phase encourages family owned businesses. Okay. Because it's decades to really get the business going sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's intergenerational. And a pecan grove can be merchantable for 200 plus years. So that tree's good for That tree's good. That's so incredible. You could have great-great-grandparents plant your orchard, right? So it's Like your family, cool. right? Yeah, yeah. It goes all the way back at least to your grandfather. To my grandfather. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to talk about politics for a minute. Okay. So you said your dad was in politics mm -hmm. up in D.C. He was. So that means that you lived in D.C. or did he I come did. home every weekend or what? Yes, every summer. Every summer? Mm-hmm. So you grew up, how old were you in D.C. and what was he I in was the house or the city? The house. I was a year old. When he first got elected? Yeah. My entire childhood was Washington, D.C. Till about what time? I went off to college. Oh my gosh, so the yeah. whole time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I went to University of Georgia and I have not left the state since. So, <laughs> All I'm, right, then, I'm, then, I'm home. Then you decided to run for politics, right? That's right. So tell me about that. I was in the Georgia House for 14 years. From what district or? It's the Decatur area and Emory yeah. University area of this now city of Atlanta. And I was very passionate about the environment. So that was sort of my Your thing. driving motivation for running for were office. Were you a Democrat or Republican or what? I, was, I ran as a Democrat, got elected as a Democrat. Yeah. So were your dad, was he a Democrat? He was, but he was what I call a Zell Yellow Miller. Dollar. But he was a Zell Miller Democrat. This was in the 60s and 70s. So I'll show you a picture. Yeah, so today he would be a uh, Republican. He, he votes. He's independent. This now. is 1968. I love it. This is, my grandfather's in this picture. He was a I state senator. It. Those yeah. are all the Republicans in the state that were elected to office. That's all there were for the Republicans. And now that's probably like the Democrats, <laughs> exactly. about the same number. <laughs> yeah. So was that woman a senator? Or was she, I think she was, was actually she like secretary. Yeah, this is 68. I'm sure she was. I don't. Yeah. My I'm, grandfather was in the state house. He was? He was like 60. So you got politics 60 in your blood. 64. Yeah, it was pretty cool. When I first ran, there were about six legislators who had served with my grandfather, including Speaker Murphy. Mm. Yeah, so that was a cool history. He was always nice to me. Because, so did you enjoy yeah. your time there? I did. I, I really did. What did you learn? What, what can you tell us about politics from the inside that maybe somebody like me doesn't know? I think the most important thing is really don't burn bridges. And I tried so hard not to be too partisan. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard in politics, and this is one of the main reasons I didn't run for re-election, is that the way the districts are drawn, they are very Democratic or very Republican. On purpose. On purpose, which is so counter to democracy. Right. Because you end up with 
elected officials who have to survive the primary. And the primary drives you to the far right or the far left. And the reality is most voters are in the middle. But it's really hard to get elected if you're in the middle. And, and I really consider myself more of a centrist, but it is hard to be a centrist in politics at any level. So that's the main reason I, I got out of it, is I was tired of the incredible divisiveness. And there started to be just a lot of issues that I just thought were mean issues and people fighting. And it cost a lot to run. My last election cost me $120,000. and For a state house seat. State house seat. And this, my last election was 2000. I got out in 2012. So my last election was 2010. So over a decade ago, it was 120000 That's too So much. it's more now. Now, this is Metro Atlanta, but still, that's a lot of money. And the job at that time, they pay a little bit better, but not much. The job at that time paid $16,000 a year before taxes. Mm. And I had to raise 120000 mm. So I just got tired of it. I kept getting redistricted. Yeah. And every, every other year, I would have a new district. New people to meet. They were constantly redistricting me. There had been a Supreme Court opinion that said you could pretty much redistrict at any time. So I was being tweaked. They were trying to push you out anyway, yeah. I guess, as Republicans started taking more control, right? Republicans were taking more control. Okay. Yeah. So, Man. But having said that, I, I have great friends on the other side of the aisle. So now I like being in Stucky world because I'm not operating as a Democrat or a Republican. I'm just selling candy and <laughs> celebrating the road trip. And hopefully that's something that brings people together as opposed to dividing them. All right, so let's let's talk about the environmental yeah. piece of your world. So how did you get involved in that and what did you do? And Well, I think it really traces back to my father. When he was in Congress, he passed the legislation to protect Cumberland Island. Oh. That was in 1972, so they just had their 50th anniversary. And he also passed the legislation designating the Okefenokee swamp. swamp as a wildlife refuge. So he passed Cumberland as the National Seashore, Okefenokee as a wildlife refuge. And so I remember as a child visiting the Okefenokee, visiting Cumberland with him, being on the land, seeing how special these places are. And so that got me just passionate about it. Right. And so when I ran for office, I learned that my district had more Sierra Club members than any other house district in the state. Wow. So I thought, well, I already love the environment and I wanted to get involved in public service. And so this, this is my thing. And I got myself on the Natural Resources Committee and just, it, it grew from there. You know, I got involved with water issues and land use and Recycling, and then you started doing that legally, management. right? Yes, and so then I left the legislature to run an environmental law firm called Green Law. And we were a nonprofit. It's unfortunately no longer around, but we represented, we said giving Georgia's environment its day in court. So we represented Riverkeepers, the Sierra Club. We did a lot of clean air, clean water litigation, represented citizens groups on things like Landfills coming in their communities, especially low-income minority communities. So we did some environmental justice work. I loved it. It was fun. So yeah, our, it was fun. Is 
you know, what, what's your take then on what's going on with the environment? You know, some people think yeah. we're going to, it's going to be terrible, and some people say it's a bunch of hogwash. What, what, what do you think? I just think all you have to do is see the severe weather that we're experiencing and know that something's not right with our environment. Just That's, look outside yeah. and see what's happening. Any farmer knows that. And I don't think farmers are super political. They just want to protect their crops. But look how Hurricane Michael devastated Georgia's pecan crop. It did. I mean, 90% of the crop was impacted one way or the other that year. Some crops were completely decimated. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing this happen. And the patterns are there, so everyone, I guess, has to draw their own conclusions. But so what's I think the it's answer? Obvious. I think every single person has to has an obligation to live their life in a way that limits the amount friendly. of resources, right? And just use less, less stuff. Hmm. Don't don't use as much. Don't you know? If you can drive an electric vehicle, do your part. But I also think. I used to think government was the answer, right? And I, I left my law practice actually to be head of sustainability for the city of Atlanta. And I still think government is a part of the solution, uh -huh. but I think business has just as important a role to play. And it's simple things too. It doesn't have to be things that hurt your bottom line. So that's one thing I really want to stress is that sustainability is about economic sustainability as well as environmental sustainability. So if you can't make the numbers work for solar, then maybe you're not quite ready yet to put solar on your facility, right? right? Like we're working on trying to figure out if we can do that. front the cost for solar. I'd love to. We're not quite there yet. So mm -hmm. I want solar, but I'm not going to lose money on that because I've right. got to pay my employees. That's about sustainability you too. Well, You've got to make some income first. I've got to keep my employee base onboarded. So that's important to me, not to have to lay off people. I would really like to <laughs> not Especially in Rens, Georgia, people. right? That's yeah, a big deal, right? No, it's, it's all about being part of the community. I think the most important thing we do for the environment is that we source our pecans locally from Georgia farmers. So we're not shipping product from all over the country. We get our packaging material from a company, Pratt, in Albany, Georgia. We get uh, other our film packaging from a firm out of North Carolina. We get our spices from, a, I think it's North or South Carolina, that's one of the Carolinas. So we source domestically. We source close to our factory. And I think that supply chain is something that too often people don't think about as being really critical to the environment. Yeah. But if you're not having to ship products. You're not product bringing stuff from, from China, right? We're really not. I mean, I think some of the t-shirts that we sell in the stores originate from India or China mm -hmm. since, or Taiwan. But pretty much what you're but, doing there yeah. is all local, it's, southeastern. You know, it's really, really hard to get domestic textiles. That's the one challenge I've had, and I think clothing God, companies. And that used to be the big thing we did We used to be, too. in Georgia too, but they're yeah. all closed. All those textile mills that we had in all LaGrange and Forsyth, they're closed, they're shuttered, they're not in operation. And I have priced out trying to get textile mills in the U.S., and it's double cost. Mm. So folks pulling over on the interstate, getting a souvenir t-shirt, they are not going to buy a $35 t-shirt. 
they're going to buy a twelve ninety nine, a fourteen ninety nine. Like our t-shirts sell for like twelve ninety nine. That's pretty. Cheap. On the interstate, but that that that's their interstate prices. We're not even Marcus. <laughs> so what I've done is we have the imprints done. The screen printing is all done domestically, but I've asked them where do you get your shirts from? Where are your blanks from? And it is what they're, it is. They're not from this country. Yeah, not yet. I think we'll get back to that. I would love that. I would love to see that happen. All right, tell me about yeah. the road trip. I mean, you've got, you've made that so much of your, yeah. your thing. So what's, is that something you're doing because you love it? Or is it something you're doing because you're trying to promote it for the product? I mean, how, what, tell me. What's got you going on road trip? Yes. <laughs> All of that. So, interesting story. When I bought the company a few months later, we were trying to figure out, well, what's a marketing strategy? And you know, when you're, people ask me, well, why are you your own brand ambassador? Why are you out there promoting Stuckies? And I, why would you? Well, the easy answer is I can afford myself. <laughs> we don't have a lot of money, we have a big budget. Any yeah. money we make, we are giving, we've given three, across the board pay raises, especially to the frontline workers. So that's where our money's going. It's investing in our people, and I can do the marketing. And I don't need to pay some social media influencer to tweet for me. So I'm doing this myself, but I had to have a strategy. So I got our team in a room, and we basically said, we're not leaving here until we figure out what is our brand about. What is our brand essence? That's cool. And there was this huge debate. It was like 12 Angry Men, if you've seen that movie, although there's huh. some women in there. Like, we were literally back and forth. Is it the pecan or is it the road trip? Because we started out on the interstate, you know, on the road. So we're this road trip brand. So is it the road trip or is it the pecan? Back and forth, back and forth. And the road trip won out. And here's why. It's storytelling. Yeah. You get that, right? So I thought... What can I tell stories about? Mm. I can tell stories about the road trip. Right. And what connects more people? It's the road trip. Now, that doesn't mean I can't do a post occasionally that tells a story about pecans, and there's some interesting things I can say. But if you're posting 365 days a year, which I try to do, original content, that's a lot to say about a nut. As much as I love the nut, but the road trip, <laughs> that's infinite. There's so many fun things you can say about the road trip. You can talk about dive bars. You can talk about quirky roadside attractions. You can talk about folk artists who have roadside displays. You can talk about your favorite museums. You can talk about cars, a whole car culture. You can talk about chains. You can talk about you know, chain restaurants. You can talk about motels, billboards. Or just that sense of fun and exploration and freedom that only a road trip can bring. How do you decide what road trip you go on? How do you? Do oh, that I'm again? very practical. My road trips are based on work. So when people see me posting on social media, like last week I was in Fort Lauderdale. Well, I was there being paid to give a speech. That's why I was there. So while I'm there, I snap some photos and I post about the road trip. So do you research that? I mean, yes. how do you how do you yes. figure that out? So I let's research. take Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. How do you do that? Because this is a good marketing thing. Because really, yeah. what what you're saying is is that marketing is about having 
something to market, right? You got to have assets, you got to have ideas, you got to have content. You have so to have content, so you have to have creating, stories. You're creating content. Yeah. So how did you go about, because this, this will help a lot of people. So I'm going to Fort Lauderdale. What's the process to come up with that content to go, hey, after the speech, before yeah. the speech, I'm going to do this? Yes. So I research. I research. The what? what? I look at research? the history of the, the, the place. So okay. I kind of understand the history. I'll read up. On Fort usually Lauderdale. Usually on the tourism sites. Like okay. Fort Lauderdale Tourism office they'll they'll have lots of information about the history of the place so i look for credible sources and then i have road tripping websites that i go to roadside america is one okay atlas obscura is one that i absolutely love there's one i just discovered i can't remember i think it's called artscape but it's roadside art so oh, i look cool. at that one there's one that i love called roadarch.com and it's roadside architecture so Old motels. Old buildings. Yeah, old buildings. So I just, I look at all those different sources, and I write down what's interesting to me. And then I get Google Maps. And Google Maps, by the way, is a great resource, too, because right. they'll pop up places to see as well. You can click on the map and see what's on there. And then I'll map it all out and figure out, well, what's where as much as possible. I try to Some walk Some of it's around. on this side of town, that side of town. Yeah. But I have certain things I like. I like drive-ins, I like dive bars, quirky museums like the Button Museum, the, funer the Funerary Museum, which is in Houston, Texas. It's the Museum of Funeral Operators. That one's kind of interesting. There's all, there's a Circus one. Museum in Sarasota, just sort of these funky offbeat places. I love seeing that sort of thing. So I, the Lunchbox Museum, that one's fun in Columbus. So there's Georgia. a like really, it's like a, it's like yeah. there's a day that's that's special for everything, and there's yeah. like a museum that's special for everything, yes. right? Like today's Candy Day, and there's a candy museum. Right? Yeah, exactly. All right. There's so a candy wrapper museum, by the way. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it, it's just meeting the people and understanding their story and their passion. Like, what led them to collect candy wrappers their whole life? I love that. That's unbelievable. See, it's not just the story of the museum. It's the people behind the museum and what led them to... Do you to go in there and talk to them and try sometimes, to Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'll reach out to them in advance and say, well, I'd love to meet you. And often these people are really excited to talk to anyone about their product or their, their museum. I've had days where I'm the only person at the museum all day, so they're super happy to see me. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it's fun. But the important thing to me is, yes, I'm celebrating the road trip. I'm selling the road trip. You tell those stories, and then your product will start selling, too. So that, that's it's the next subtle. thing. It's subtle. You so, don't have to be like, buy my pecan log roll. That's kind of boring, <laughs> right? Right. But if you tell a story about how fun the road trip is, and, oh, by the way, this makes a great road trip snack. You should take one along. That's the idea. It's a little more fun. All right, so yeah, it's tell practical. Me, so tell me about, so LinkedIn seems to be your major yes. strategy. Yes. All right, so what do people need to know about what your experience has been on LinkedIn and making that work for their business? What, what have you learned? I think the key thing to know is that it's not any one element. So it's not just posting on LinkedIn. It's creating a brand, 
building conversations and building it in a multi-pronged way. Like I give speeches, I do podcasts, I talk to people like you, I post on LinkedIn, I post on all the other social media channels. We have an email blast, we have a website, I have a blog. So there's all this different dialogue and content going out there. Also video content, I'm on TikTok. Not as regularly as I'd like to be, but it's a bit of a challenge for me. But I am trying to post at least once a week, a little something, something. So LinkedIn, though, is for me more what we're focused on to drive growth in our business. Because, because businesses we're are B2B. There? We're B2B. Most of our business is selling our product to companies like Food Lion, Wawa, Ingalls. We're in big lots and two of their distribution centers, not nationwide, but a couple. So it's growing through those other partners. Businesses. Yeah, there's yeah. partner retailers. So LinkedIn is the space for B2B. Right. And I'll give you a great example. I did a post on Wawa. A year ago, I'm at a Wawa, not holding a cup of coffee in the Wawa post. I'm holding, or a cup of wine, I'm holding a cup of coffee. And I'm basically like, here I am at Wawa with my coffee. You know what would go really great with my coffee would be a pecan log roll. And I just posted that on LinkedIn. Well, it got the attention of the CEO of Wawa. And he reached out to me via LinkedIn and said, I'll connect you with our snack and candy buyer. So you'll see these large companies. You weren't there before. We were not there before. It all came from LinkedIn. Now it took a year. I had to meet with them. We had to send them samples. We had to get established with their distribution firm, which is McLean Southeast. We had to pay the slotting fees. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into actually getting your product on a shelf. But we're, we're in Wawa now, and I posted actually this week, because I was down in Florida, we're in Wawa in Florida. One skew, it's that maple skew, the maple pecan. And so I did a post, this time me holding the product. At the store. And I said, it all started with a LinkedIn post. So wow. it does work, but it's a lot of work to get it to work. It right, wasn't, so you much? know, you can't have like two followers and post at, at Walmart and say, hey, I want to be on Walmart, and then suddenly the CEO of Walmart is going to be messaging How you. did you get more followers? I post every day. I post original content. I tell stories. Talk they about just started coming the road in. trip. I talk about themes that are universal, that connect people. You engage in conversation. If somebody comments, you comment back. You share content of Are people you, you admire. Are you doing that personally? Yes. I don't have a social media person. But you do the posts. You I do, do the pictures. You do I the do videos. Them. Everything. I do them. How much yeah. time do you spend every day on that? An hour a day, probably. An hour? Yeah. I'd say an hour. A good hour. That's pretty good. And I have a strat. You know, I have a. I would say like there are uh, at the beginning of the year typically we'll do strategy sessions or. Ted Wright on our board will call me and say, all right, Stephanie, that post today was a little off. Let's talk. And so we'll have these strategy sessions where he helps me understand how you guide your conversations in a way. No, he's that's, very helpful. That's going to. It's all about his, his niche is word of mouth marketing. Mm -hmm. How do you get other people to talk about it? Yeah, that's the most powerful it's the endorsement. Way. I mean, you can see all the ads you want saying, buy these kettle glazed, but 
if I'm at a cocktail party and I'm talking to you, and your wife serves up a Stucky's nut, and you're like, these are the best, you gotta try them, what's gonna sell my product? It's that word of mouth from trusted people. And there's only a small portion of the population that are word of mouth influencers, right? You're one of them. But they're people who wanna try new things, and it's not just wanna try new things, the second part is they wanna share it with others. Well, you want to share yeah. with other people stuff that you don't think they know because yes. it makes you feel like you're smart. Right. That's <laughs> Unfortunately, exactly. that's Well, true. it's not just that, but yeah, you get like a kick <laughs> out of it. Like you enjoy saying, oh my God, do you know about the iPhone? You know, like you're probably one of the very first people who was like standing in line getting the first iPhone and telling everyone about it and you have the cool, hot new thing and you tell everyone and then they tell people and they're like, Oh my gosh, if I want to know what the cool thing is, you got to call Steve. You know, everyone has a friend like that. <laughs> yeah. At least one friend. Yeah. Those are the people I'm talking to. That's where your focus yeah, is. Yeah, those are my peeps. I need those people telling their 2,000 friends, <laughs> right, on social media. Yeah, they got 2,000. That's actually pretty influencers good. Influencers on, on LinkedIn probably have at least 2,000. Oh, influencers, definitely. Yeah. How many people do you have on your LinkedIn following you? I am now, I, I checked this morning because I did a webinar about this, 113,000. And and three years ago, I had 2,000. So all wow. of that has happened in recent years, posting every single day. And that, that's, yeah. that's. It does not posting. happen overnight. You don't just No, but it's get not it. just posting yeah. every day. It's posting good quality content every day. Original content, original photographs. And it's different every day. I try to be different. <laughs> <laughs> There's some days where I'm like, all right, I'm going to write about a drive-in theater again. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Here's so another dive bar I discovered. <laughs> dive bars are good because... There are people out there who are just rabid about dive bars. So I know a dive bar post is going to get some interest. So, And I love a dive bar. It's like it spikes up when you do the dive bar? Well, yes, and you know why? Like, dive bars are things that draw community together. Yeah. So I try to focus on what is it that connects people with a community. Mm. And so for me, I don't know if you call it a dive bar, but like I love Manuel's Tavern, I love Northside Tavern. There's certain places in well, they're Atlanta. they're like they're, they're like fun. pubs were in yeah. England, right? This is a community where yeah. the community gets together. Yeah, and you get a PBR. It's always on tap. You ask for the menu, they're gonna hand you a Slim Jim. You know, kind of be like, what do you mean menu? Yeah. And so I like those places because you you, you can sit at the bar and talk to someone. You can learn about the place. And everybody loves to tell you about the fun, interesting place in their town. So I like to post, I'm going to be in San Diego. What's a, what's a fun dive bar in San Diego? And see what people come up with. And they'll, they'll say Always come up with good places. Yes, oh, every single time. I discovered the Top Gun bar because of that. Where Top Gun, the, the scene the in Top Gun, yeah. you know, where they're playing the piano yeah. and they're singing Great Balls of Fire. Yeah. That bar is in San Diego. It's a dive bar. It's called, it's actually called Kansas City Barbecue. It's a barbecue joint, but they have a, a bar section that is total dive bar with the dollar bills on the wall, right? And it's, it's a military town, so there's a lot of military paraphernalia up on the walls, but it's really a great bar. That's cool. Yeah, and the piano is there. 
the piano that they played on. That's yep. so cool. And the and the corner where at the very end they they're playing "Take My Breath Away." Mm -hmm. That's the you could you're like there it is. That's where they filmed it, right there. Yeah. So that stuff is fun. And then you post about that. And everyone loves Top Gun. Who doesn't love that movie? And now that no. Maverick's out. It's fantastic. So, yeah, it's just this stuff that binds us, that connects us, that people people can relate to. So where do Stuckies go from where it is now? What's Where are we headed? Where, yeah. where do we want to go? So two things. One is I have this audacious goal for us to be the go-to pecan snack in this country. So when people think, I want to grab a pecan bag on my snack aisle, we want them Say to get Stuckies. Like, we're going to be what Planners is for the peanut, what the wonderful company is for the pistachio, what mm. Emerald and Blue Diamond are for the almond, what Mauna Loi is for the macadamia nut. I had to think for a second. So we want to be that for the pecan. Okay. So continue to drive growth through production and marketing and sales of our pecan snacks and candies. And then the other is I still love the stores, even though we don't own or operate any. So I have this dream to own five Stucky stores. I'm calling them Stucky's Oasis. That's sort of in my mind, uh -huh. the concept I've worked on. I've, I've actually written it out. It's not just in my mind. I have a, I have a document. I have a visioning document of what this looks store like. looks like. It's this welcoming oasis. And, yes, it will have, those of you familiar with our brand, it will have the sloped roof, this kind of this color, the turquoise. So we will have elements of the classic Stuckies, but we'll have EV charging, we'll have dog parks, and it will be a celebration of the road trip, and there will only be five of them. I don't need 200 stores. They're going to be destination locations that are brand forward, that are an opportunity for us to innovate, try out new product, create an experience where people will go out of their way to pull over, and most importantly, I don't want us to be competing with all the other partners we have out there. So if we have 200 stores. So you want to be where yeah. they're not. Yeah, yeah or just even if there's only five. Do you have enough product to fill up a store? Or a oh, well, you can source other. I mean, right now, our T-shirts and our yeehaws and our kitschy, the snow globes and the alligator heads, like, we source those from other vendors. So we'll get other stuff. sort of road trip souvenirs from other vendors absolutely and we have a distribution company already that sources that product for the licensed locations that we have so yeah. we already have a structure in place mm -hmm. to buy that product and sell that product so yeah we're not going to fill up just with our product alone you thought about riding like a harley it sounds like that might Wouldn't be, that be fun i'm kind of scared like maybe <laughs> if i could maybe i could be someone on the back yeah. could hang on you could do that you yeah could do that I think that'd be fun <laughs> because motorcyclists love uh, the back roads of America, right? It's kind of boring to ride on an interstate. Yeah, are you, you are you Harley? Oh no, I'm not a Harley. I'm a BMW. Okay, guy. all right, but, but but you're part of that culture. I rode my dirt bike. Love it. I rode my dirt bike from Charleston, South Carolina to Charleston, Oregon on dirt. Dang, road. that's amazing. But that was different. But I think that was like, warrior. that's a dirt, that's a dirt ride, not a road ride, but we do a lot of trips. I went to I all the it. way up the east coast of Maine. I just got back from doing around uh, Yellowstone, oh, you know, beautiful. so those trips are 
Yeah, all those motorcycle guys. It's almost yeah. like you need one in like uh, Sturgis, South Dakota, where they yeah. have the big Harley thing. You know. I love motorcyclists because they're they get our brand. They get it. They get Stuckies. We're on, and and also car enthusiasts. Yes. Right. Basically Muscle classic. car drivers, classic car drivers, mm. like the Stuckies that I would own. These five Stuckies. We'd have swap meets. We'd have. We'd have motorcyclist gatherings, and so yes, I want us to be a meeting point for people who love the road trip. And the cool thing I learned about motorcyclists, which you know, is that they love motels. Oh yeah. Because you can pull your bike up. Pull up right in front and worry yes. about somebody messing with your bike. That's right. Some so, guys. Yeah, actually... you love the motorports <laughs> and the motels that are just classic roadside Americana. But you also like them to be nice, right? And let's be real, a lot of them are really Pretty not crappy. that nice. So I have a book for you. There's a, a guy I've gotten to be friends with just virtually. His name's Andrew Beatty, and he and his wife travel Canada and the U.S. on motorcycles. And he's done one book. He's got a second book coming out about motels across America for, for motorcyclists or road trippers, and they're nice. Sweet. They're where you'd, like, actually want to spend the night my guys will actually put their bike in their hotel room <laughs> you know see that that's why you stay in a motel that's why that's you not stay a hotel that. that's a motel <laughs> hotel motel holiday yeah. inn that's right <laughs> well my favorite now there's a great one in georgia and savannah really the thunderbird inn oh i think i've seen that oh my god it's amazing i stay there every time is it cool it's amazing yeah it's classic it's like 60s 1960s beautifully redone. redone, great neon sign out front, nice little gift shop, by the way, shameless plug, they sell Stucky's product, mainly because I'm a regular there, and I <laughs> I went to the, I, I was paying, and I said, they had moon pies, and I love moon pies, and I said, well, Stucky's go great with moon pies, so you should, you should sell some Stucky's, too, and I talked to the manager, and I said, oh, well, I happen to own the company, so <laughs> we here's some samples. Out. Yeah, so now they carry our product, and they have a great Instagram So page. you want people, yeah. you, if somebody out there knows somebody that owns some retail operations, yeah. they can buy it. If they own a, a C-store, they can buy your product, right? Or if they know yeah. somebody that's, you know. Absolutely. That's awesome. And we're in distributors, so if you're in the business, you would know Cormark, Vistar, UNFI, uh, GSC, which is grocery, so we're in grocery as well. I mentioned How about McLean. independent grocery store? Independence as well. IGA, IGA is an independent. Uh, Piggly Wigglies are independently owned, franchised. So absolutely. So they can just get on our website. There is a spot on the website where you can... Place an order. You can, well, you email us and we'll... You know, we have to get information like your EIN number, make sure you're a legit wholesale business. You can't just be like, hey, I want to buy your product wholesale because I sell stuff in my garage. Like, no, you got to be a legit wholesaler. Right. But yes, we will We will start the process, which is pretty painless. We can usually get an order placed like within a few days. Bam. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a delight. Anything I should ask you about that I haven't that'll help you promote your brand? No. Well, it's about storytelling. And and thank you. And thank you for what you do. <laughs> and thank you for that wine. That was good. I usually don't drink wine in interviews, but 
But you usually don't do interviews in somebody's living room. Yeah, it's like, and by the way, just so you know, this is not like 7 a.m. We're, what is it? It's like 6 o'clock at night. It's past that. Yeah, so this is an evening taping. So it's it's happy hour. Well, Debbie, thank you. Y'all, thank you for uh, listening to another Beach Talk. And um, go online, share it with your friends. And um, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.